It's shiny, it's new, it's a Band-Aid. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. I'm Ricky Mulvey, sitting in for Chris Hill. Asit Sharma joins us now. Asit, good to see you. Good to see you, Ricky. Just a quick note, we will cover the Fed announcement on tomorrow's show. It is a little past 2 p.m. Eastern time right now, so we're not going to get to that or the regional banks nonsense. But there's a lot of earnings and even an IPO to talk about. Asset tomorrow, a very rare thing is happening, which is that a company is going public. Johnson & Johnson is spinning off Kenview, the consumer health stable, which includes brands like Band-Aid, Tylenol, and Neutrogena. Uh, is there a business reason to do this, or is this just because analysts don't like mixing multiples and uh, mixed fractions are hard? company like Johnson Johnson, very diversified, conglomerate business, tends to mask some of its strength by having this consumer health business nestled up beside a pharmaceutical business. The pharmaceutical revenue streams have a higher margin, so management feels that if we spin off the consumer-facing stuff, then maybe shareholders will value us more for what we can produce, the profits we're capable of. At the same time, a good consumer-facing company, when it's managed by a set of dedicated capital allocators, veterans, sometimes you can improve the speed at which that business accelerates and the profits as well. In the best of both worlds, the two parts separated will each have better results and have more value assigned to them by shareholders. That's to be seen in the execution, though. Yeah, Kenview Brands did about $15 billion in net sales last year. Right now, the company, the conglomerate, is being valued at around $40 billion. That's less than three times sales. And when you look at a, a comparable company, let's say Procter & Gamble, which consistently trades around four to five times sales, uh, do you think Johnson & Johnson is asking too little here? Is this, is this a good opportunity for investors? I think they're asking what the market will bear. I mean, there are a few factors that informed this decision to go in at 40 billion bucks. One is this separate company Kenview is expected to grow, you know, in the low to mid single digits for the next couple of years. So out of the gate investors aren't going to assign it a crazy multiple. Second, if you look at Procter and Gamble's earnings multiple, and here it might be easier just to take their market capitalization versus their trailing net income, they're valued at around 13 times the net income they produce. Whereas, in this IPO, Kenview is going to be valued more like 20 to 25 times its net income, depending on how you adjust the, the pro forma earnings. So, it is getting some love there from that perspective. The third is, I think, the control factor that Johnson & Johnson is exercising. Not only are they going to own about 91.5% of shares after this company goes public, they will continue to exercise control even after that control percentage starts to dip down. This brings a question in the mind of investors who are looking for that earnings growth and that sales acceleration I talked about. If you're not going to let the robin fully leave the nest, is the management team really going to be able to allocate the capital in the, the fashion manner they want? This is the whole reason to do a spinoff, so that a company can function free of those corporate uh, apron strings. And I, I wonder, if I'm if I'm looking at this company, is it worth <laughs> the forty billion? Should I be discounting these shares for that reason? 
Yeah, according to the prospectus, though, you're getting some top top dogs. Uh, you get Listerine, the number one mouthwash, and uh, according to the S1, the leader in mouthwash research. Um, you're also getting Nicorette, the number one smoking cessation brand, and Zyrtec, the number one allergy brand. Does that give this company a little bit more of that premium you just described? It's certainly in that premium in the consumer goods world. I mean, you mentioned Procter and Gamble. Brands count for so much, right? In the pharmaceutical world, part of that brand power rests in, in your doctor's mind whether they're going to prescribe you that uh, medicine or not. But on the consumer-facing side, brands like Nicorette have a lot of staying power, Listerine. So there is a reason to want to buy these because they they don't certify, but they suggest that those cash flows are going to be really stable for some time to come. While some companies are getting spun off, others are getting spun up. Olive Garden parent company Darden Restaurants announced that it is buying Ruth's Hospitality Group, or Ruth's Chris Steakhouse, for $715 million. This will join its stable of steakhouses and fine dining brands like Longhorn and Eddie V's. Asset, the market sure thinks that this is going through. Ruth shot up more than 30% this morning to just $0.10 cents below the buyout price. I think the market thinks that this is a fine deal for Darden, and it's a good deal for Ruth's shareholders. They don't see much in the way of you know, regulators stepping in or, or another company bidding for these uh, publicly traded assets, we should, we should note. So, I think that the consensus view this morning seems to be the deal will go through. The, the pricing is fair, and we can talk about the pricing in just a minute. I wanted to point out, from Darden's perspective, that obviously management thinks they can do a better job running this fellow steakhouse than the management of Ruth's hospitality group has done. Now, there are some economies of scale that Darden can bring to this because they're you know a little bit larger, and as you point out, they are in the business of these sort of fine dining, higher-end steakhouses. But all, all in all, this seems like it is beneficial both to shareholders of Ruth, Ruth Hospitality Group and eventually, maybe not today, shareholders of, of Darden. Uh, I want to talk about the valuation just for a sec. So, Darden has $900 million in current assets, more than double that amount in, in, in current liabilities. Again, this is around $700 million for, for Ruth's Hospitality Group. Uh, is is this a meal that they can choke down, or is this is this unaffordable for that balance sheet? Yeah, they've got liquidity, but it's liquidity with an asterisk. If you look on their balance sheet, absolutely, Ricky. Like, where are they going to get this cash from? But they do happen to have a near billion dollar line of credit with Bank of America. So when they talk about liquidity in the press release, that's where that money is coming from. Bank of America is providing that cash. Now the deal makes some sense on a valuation basis because Ruth's Hospitality Group was trading at a lower EBITDA multiple than Darden. If you look on a trailing basis, Darden was trading around 14 times uh, its EBITDA, earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. Ruth's was trading at a, a much lower multiple, something like six to seven times. So even with this premium of 30%, Darden is still acquiring its smaller rival at less than its own shares are trading for in the public market. So if they can bring those two to three percent points of operating margin that they enjoy, which are higher than Ruth's just now, to this smaller company, they'll get a double whammy. They'll increase the, the earnings power of Ruth's, and they'll also eventually be able to enjoy those cash flow streams being valued at their current multiple. And that's sort of the magic for them. That's that's the bull case. I mean, obviously, most acquisitions destroy shareholder wealth, and Darden uh, restaurant shareholders really seem to take this acquisition with a 
uh, straight line face emoji. Uh, but it is a chain of steakhouses buying another chain of steakhouses. So there's got to be some uh, some is the is the corporate finance folks synergies in there. Yeah, I th- I think they're in there. Ruth's does not break out their restaurant margin quite to the extent we'd like them to, but I suspect that Darden is better on both its uh, labor costs and its raw food cost. I think they're just that much better. Let's say one to two percentage points in restaurant margin, and that's part of where these synergies will come from. Let's stay on food. Yum Brands, which operates KFC, Pizza Hut, and Taco Bell, reported first quarter earnings this morning. Yum beat revenue and same-store sales expectations, but missed on earnings due to, quote, declines in the value of unnamed investments, end quote. That's what I called my crypto era, Asset. What were your big takeaways from Yum's quarter? I thought Yum did a fine job with the quarter. This is the time where a QSR operator with a lot of franchise revenues, and not just operating restaurants, but but taking in that high margin franchise uh, royalty, should be able to make hay. You want to bring customers in with limited time offers. Consumers are looking to spend less. They're dropping down in their eating habits. So this is the time to show that strong sales growth in the same store sales and also some restaurant additions. And that's what we saw out of Yum Brands today. It's also sort of a canary in the coal mine for uh, reopening across the globe. KFC has more than 8,000 locations in China. That's double the footprint uh, in the United States. Anything you saw in the global reopening that caught your attention? Well, China's coming back, right? The thing that I like for Yum Brands is that the majority of the take from China comes through its master franchising agreement with Yum China, which it spun off, I think, in 2016. So they have some insulation on the cost side. When consumers start coming back in China, they get a nice lift out of that without some of the the risk of the operations. So I think that's good for them. But I would be cautious. You know, I saw some. Uh, small bits of data coming out of China that said maybe this manufacturing rebound was a little bit of a flash in the pan. Consumer spending follows that kind of confidence. Just now, we have a surge of Chinese consumers on in all sectors of the market. They're eating out. They're starting to travel again. They were locked down for much longer than the rest of the world. But I wonder how steady and strong that impetus to spend is going to be. I wouldn't be surprised to see it pull back in a quarter or two. Well, that's one of Yum's advantages, which is that they're looking at that lower price point, right? They have the Taco Bell's $2 and under menu. You can get a grilled cheese burrito for 5 bucks if you want Pizza Hut's $7 melts. Now, that's in the United States, but it seems like the same strategy would apply globally uh, compared to a company like Darden buying Ruth's Chris, where, where there's an easy trade down. Uh, Yum seems to be capturing those those folks who are uh, impacted, by res- impacted by inflation, may already be living in a recession. I think they are. And the one caveat for investors, like why this doesn't become a slam dunk investment at a time like this, is they're struggling with the same things we are. Their costs are going up too. So, commodity costs, packaging costs in QSRs, the food costs, the labor costs, all that's rising. So, you have to be able to make something out of that on the bottom line. At least the top line, though, we are seeing those numbers come through. Yeah, you saw that with uh, Yum's leadership answering and the analyst calls. The analysts, of course, across every company, poking and prodding, hoping that leaders will update their guidance, put that a little bit higher for my model. Yum is not keen to do this. They're sticking with last year's projections. And 
I think if I were a CEO, I'd be doing the exact same thing because throughout this earnings season, companies are getting punished for for missing expectations, but there's been absolutely no benefit if they're solidly crushing them. Sometimes we ask too much of CEOs when we desire them to get their head out of their own businesses and become macro experts and make these big calls. And Wall Street tries to demand, tell us what the economy is going to do over the next four quarters, then tell us exactly what your company is going to do in its top and bottom lines. That's a hard exercise. I don't blame Yum either. Asa Sharma, thank you for your time. So much fun, Ricky. Thanks a lot. Up next, Deidre Woolard and Matt Frankel preview Berkshire Hathaway's annual meeting, which kicks off this Saturday. So you went last year. What are you hoping to get from from this year's event? I mean, obviously, you can watch the the Buffett Q and A live online if you wanted to. You could read about it after the fact. It's really the the experience of it. It's just that. You really get a feel for what Berkshire is as a company that you don't get online. I was shocked at how many people there were over 85 and had been investors in the company forever. Like you get to meet some of the original investors and like kind of talk to them about what they saw in it because you can talk a lot about Buffett's investment style, but especially from talking to the people who have been invested in Berkshire forever. That was one of the coolest experiences there of getting kind of that insight on what they saw in this company 30, 40, 50 years ago and try to apply that to my investing style today and just you know learn a lot of valuable lessons from people who really got it right. Well, that's interesting because I can imagine that Berkshire as a conglomerate has changed over the years in terms of what those people bought at that time versus what what it is now. Uh, do you have any favorites among the investments that that Berkshire has made? Well, I mean, obviously I'm a bank and real estate guy, so those kind of are I'm biased toward those. But I love how his investments will evolve over time. Talking about banks and real estate, at one point Berkshire owned Freddie Mac, and, and I mean, obviously, no one wants to own Freddie Mac stock these days. The company shifted, so Buffett shifted. One of my favorites that he invested in recently, I'd say, is Ally Financial, um, kind of a smaller bank, especially in the regional banking turmoil because it's kind of gotten caught up in it, but doesn't have the same you know lack of FDIC insurance, the same big corporate clients, things like that. I really like that. I like how he uh, his Bank of America investment, um, when Berkshire bought into Bank of America during the financial crisis, it really kind of made me look at it while, while I otherwise wouldn't probably wouldn't have considered it. I would have said too risky, things like that, but if Buffett was willing to put his money in. Um, but I don't know if I could pick just one favorite, especially when you consider that they own 60 or so companies that they've bought over the years, as well as about four dozen stocks. So that's more than a hundred investments to choose from. It's really hard to pick just one or two. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Well, you mentioned banking and real estate. These are going to be hot topics, I'm assuming, at at the conference. Uh, among the questions asked, I know Charlie Munger recently spoke about commercial real estate, which which had people feeling a little jittery. If you could ask Buffett or or Munger one question, what would it be? Yeah, my name is on the list to ask a question, but I mean that there, there. I'm with about ten thousand people there. What's the question? It's not a banking or real estate question. I would ask him about <laughs> the the Activision investment that he made the day before last year's meeting. They announced that they had bought a nine point five percent stake in Activision. I think it's actually increased a bit since then uh, as an arbitrage play. And we just heard that Europe. Uh, I think it was is it Europe or Great Britain that's uh, blocking the deal. Kind of the opposite of how Buffett saw that going. It, it sounds like on the surface. 
So now my question is, did they hold that kind of is, was it an arbitrage with backup situation? Meaning that if it didn't work out, he's happy to hold it because it's a great business or is it an arbitrage play that if, if it doesn't work out, he, he loses. So the Activision investment, especially since this news just came right before this year's meeting, um, I'm sure someone will ask that question while we're there, or Buffett will just volunteer the information. But that's really the biggest question on my mind going into the meeting. Well, in terms of things that Buffett has done recently, he went, you know, he went big on oil with Occidental Petroleum. Everybody was following that for a while. This year it's been sort of interesting. He, you know, he's done different things with with some of the Japanese trading houses. What kind of lessons can can we take from his moves? That he's unpredictable. Who would have guessed Japanese trading houses? It, to me, I, I put that in the too hard basket for personally. With the Occidental Petroleum, and it was Chevron too last year before the the, the meeting. Um, he put a lot of money into oil last year, and a lot of that was after the price started to rebound. Remember during like the early days of COVID, for a while, oil prices actually went negative at one point because they just didn't have anywhere to put it, and all the oil stocks were you know tanking at that point. But then fast forward like a year, oils had really rebounded nicely, and Buffett puts a ton of money into Occidental and Chevron. Chevron's, I think, Berkshire's number three investment right now. Um, and it, it's Buffett doesn't try to time the market. He's willing to sell at a loss if his thesis didn't work out. The airlines were a big example of that, that he sold um, a couple years ago at a big loss and said, you know, this just didn't work out. And he, he, doesn't worry. He doesn't ask the question, did I miss this opportunity? He looks at the snapshot of the company now and whether or not it looks like a good long-term opportunity. Not, okay, Occidental Petroleum's doubled. Did I miss the boat? And that's kind of a... F- I, I'm, I'm very guilty of this. Um, I, I recently bought... Um, I, I've added, speaking of real estate, I, I've been building a position at Redfin over the past like six months. And now the stock has doubled from its lows or a little bit more. And I've still, I'm still buying shares because I'm looking at it as a snapshot in time. Are they making progress? Is the real estate market stabilizing? Things like that. Not, did I miss the boat by not buying more at $3 a share as opposed to $7 a share? So, Buffett kind of applies the same logic as using kind of the snapshot in time rather than wondering if he's missed the big move. And, and that's a, a big lesson. It doesn't matter if the stock's already rebounded, if it's still going, if it still has a lot of long-term potential. So, if you're not at the meeting, that you mentioned, it is still broadcast live. Uh, it's it's a it's a long couple of hours, but there are always a lot of you know sort of moments of wisdom. What do you think? It, give me a reason that investors should take the time, spend their Saturday afternoon, listening to that broadcast. Well, it's as you mentioned, it's kind of a long Q and A session. It's actually broken into two parts. Other than I think an hour break for lunch, they're answering questions from about nine thirty to four thirty straight. Um, so it's a long day of questions. If you read a transcript, it's going to be a very long transcript. So that's one. If you watch and if you read a recap, like you know, seven things you missed from the Berkshire meeting, it's going to be a very condensed version of what was said and things like that. And a lot of it is in the long answers that Buffett gives. If you actually add up the number of questions he answers in that period, it's it's a lot lower than you might think it is, because he takes his time and gives a drawn out answer to each one. And there's a lot of like little tidbits of wisdom in each answer. It's, um, it, it's it's really interesting to watch and how his thoughts evolve over time. The same general framework applies when he's answering questions over time, but there are certain questions that come up all the time. 
have you ever considered paying a dividend is a big one that that is asked at like every other Berkshire meeting. And the answer really evolves over time, or why don't you buy back more shares? That answer has definitely evolved over time as the Berkshire buyback plan has. Or, um, you know, do you, do you think you'll beat the market over time? Do you think you'll replicate your last, you know, 20 years performance or something? Um, the answers change over time, but the general ideas he's conveying are really very timeless. Um, you could find a lot of timeless investment wisdom in listening to the the Q and A, you don't have to listen to all seven hours. I I, I mean, I, there are times at the meeting when I get up and need to stretch my legs and, and take a walk. Um, I can't sit in an arena seat for seven hours, but that's just me. Uh, but it it was it's a very valuable experience, and I always feel like I come out of it a better investor. I've watched it ever since it's they started live streaming it a few years back, but last year was the first time I went in person. We've got two men, ninety nine, and I believe ninety two. We have to know they probably aren't going to be around forever. Thinking about Berkshire going forward, are you still going to be a Berkshire shareholder once Buffett is no longer in charge? Yeah, I mean to be clear, I hope they both live to 120. Oh, don't we all? <laughs> but having said that, at some point they will not be around anymore. I mean, they could re- Buffett could retire. It's he's he's definitely hinted before that if his he's, he doesn't feel like mentally clear enough to run the company or anything like that, he would step down. I will still be a shareholder. I actually think that when Warren Buffett's no longer running things and the succession plans put in place, it could end up being a net positive for long-term investors. And the reason I say, I mean, I'm not in the camp that Buffett's investment style is outdated. You'll see a lot of that, like on Twitter and things like that. Buffett doesn't get technology, things like that. But he's kind of grooming two investment advisors to take over the portfolio, and they do get newer technologies and newer investment ideas and. They they were the ones who initially got Apple into the portfolio, which has been his most successful investment of all time in terms of dollar amount. They're the ones who invested in Snowflake pre-IPO, which, as far as tech stocks go, has held up pretty well in the in the in the recent turmoil. Um, they, they added Amazon to the portfolio, uh, um, so there, there's it brought it will broaden the investable universe of Berkshire stock portfolio. When his kind of proteges are running the entire thing, right now they run, you know, less than ten percent of the portfolio uh, between them, and have outperformed Buffett in most recent years. So I, I almost think that that could take Berkshire's stock portfolio, which is about half the mark the company by market cap, um, really into the next fifty years. As always, people on the program may have interests in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. I'm Ricky Mulvey. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.